Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk. Now, on with the show. Our event we're talking about today occurred in the year 1643. What else happened that year? Well, on July the 1st, the Westminster Assembly of Theologians, or Divines, and Parliamentarians is convened at Westminster Abbey with the aim of restructuring the Church of England. July the 13th saw the first English Civil War battle of Roundway Down. Henry Wilmot, newly created Baron Wilmot, commanding Royalist cavalry, wins a crushing victory over parliamentarian Sir William Waller. On November the 24th, as part of the Thirty Years' War, we saw the Battle of Tutlingen. France is defeated by forces of the Holy Roman Empire. And lastly, on December the 25th, Christmas Island in the Indian Ocean is sighted and named by Captain William Miners of the British East India Company ship Royal Mary. But our event happened on the 5th of July, 1643, on Lansdowne Hill, just outside Bath, when a battle occurred that would change the course of history for the United Kingdom. Word of the Week And this week, the word I give you is... Matchlock, which is the most common method of firing a firearm used in the English Civil War. When the trigger of a firearm was pressed, a lever holding a length of lit cord, or the match, brought the match into contact with the priming powder. This was eventually superseded by the more reliable wheel lock. The wheel lock worked when the trigger was pressed and a metal wheel attached to a spring, spun round and grated against a piece of iron pyrite. A shower of sparks went into a priming pan and fired the weapon. Though far more reliable than a matchlock, it was also a lot more expensive and its cost limited the number used in battle. We'll be talking about the Battle of Lansdowne Hill, just outside Bath. This was fought between the Royalists and the Parliamentarians. 
The Royalists were supporters of King Charles I in his struggle with Parliament in the English Civil War with their Cavaliers, claiming rule by absolute monarchy and the principle of the divine right of kings. They were mainly Catholics, most of the nobles and gentry, about half of all members of Parliament, and the poorer areas of the North and West. The term cavalier was first used by roundheads as a term of abuse for the wealthier royalist supporters of King Charles I and his son, King Charles, who would later become Charles II of England. The word is derived from the late Latin cavalarius, or horseman. At the Restoration, the court party preserved the name cavalier, which survived until the rise of the term Tory. In the opposing corner, we had the parliamentarians, or roundheads, who were supporters of the Parliament of England and wanted to give the Parliament supreme control over executive administration of the Kingdom. They were mainly Puritans, the more militant members of Parliament, merchants, the richer areas of the South and East. During the war and for a period of time afterwards, Roundhead was a term of derision, and in the New Model Army, it was a punishable offence to call a fellow soldier a roundhead. They had by the hair of their heads very few of them longer than their ears, whereupon it came to pass that those who usually with their cries attended at Westminster were by a nickname called roundheads. That was from the 11th edition of the Encyclopaedia Britannica, quoting a contemporary authority's description of the crowd that gathered at Westminster when the debates in Parliament in the Clergy Act of 1640 were causing riots. Apart from their hairstyles, they also wore very plain and simple clothes, whilst the Cavaliers had long hair and wore fancy clothes. Previous to the Battle of Lansdowne Hill, Sir William Waller, a parliamentarian, was defeated by Sir Ralph Hopton and his royalist army at Roundway Down near Devizes. Waller then retired to Bristol, and the royalists again took possession of Bath. Nearly two years later, on June the 14th, 1645, King Charles I was disastrously defeated at Naseby in Northamptonshire. Thomas Fairfax, the Roundhead Commander-in-Chief for the First Civil War, accompanied by Oliver Cromwell, then marched westward after a series of parliamentary successes in other parts of Somerset. Bath fell to the Roundheads on July the 29th, and Cromwell's new model army had proved invincible. In the early summer of 1643, the royalist position in England made them really quite happy. Parliamentarian morale had been dented by a series of royalist successes, which included Edwalton Moor, Hopton Heath, Ripplefield, Stratton and Shalgrove. But Oxford was still reasonably secure. In the West, however, parliamentarian garrisons continued to hold out in Devon, while Gloucester, Bristol and Bath were firmly controlled by Parliament. 
So if Sir Ralph Hockton's Royalist army had any chance of marching east to join the King's Oxford army in a combined advance in London, Parliament's position in the west really had to be destroyed. Sir William Waller, as Major General of the Western Association Forces, commanded Parliament's large military resources in Shropshire, Worcestershire, Gloucestershire, Wiltshire and Somerset, and his army held Bath, stopping any further advance by the enemy, and was Parliament's main defence against the advance out of the southwest of the Royalist Army under Hopton. On the 2nd of July, 1643, the Royalists seized the bridge at Bradford-on-Avon near Bath. On the 3rd of July, skirmishes took place at Claverton and at Waller's position south and east of Bath. Waller retired to a strong position on Lansdowne Hill, northwest of Bath, while the main Royalist forces moved north through Bath Easton to Marshfield. Sir Ralph Hopton's Royalist forces found Waller's commanding position on Lansdowne Hill on the 4th of July and were unpleasantly surprised at its strength. They withdrew the five miles northeast back to Marshfield, whilst their rear guard stopped any attempt by Waller's cavalry to pursue them. One of the Royalist rear guard was led by Prince Maurice and the Earl of Carnarvon with their Cornish musketeers who managed to block off any way for the enemy to attack the Royalists. Colonel Slingsby's retelling of the Battle of Lansdowne states that on the morning of the battle, there were loose skirmishes upon Tog Hill between parties of the opposing forces, and there were also fighting all along the lane that leads over Tog Hill to Lansdowne, that lane being then, as now, a narrow and ill passage. This may account for the presence of the Pikehead, where it was found in 1933 in a field called Engrove, but I'll tell you more about that later. After some early successes on Tog Hill, which was about a mile or more north of Lansdowne Hill, the Parliamentarian forces were forced to retreat. It was then that Hopton took the initiative and made direct and flanking attacks up the steep slopes of Lansdowne Hill. Despite the heavy losses amongst the regiments of horse, foot and centre, under musket and artillery fire, the Royalists finally gained a foothold on the Scarf Edge. Repeated cavalry charges failed to dislodge them, and Waller was finally forced to retire, as he was outflanked by attacks through the woods on either side. The following account is from a record that was in the collection of a Mr T. Harding in 1892, and is dated July the 14th, 1643. It was believed to have been written by a parliamentarian soldier. At length our foot growing weary, a fresh supply was sent, who being but fresh soldiers did not make good their ground, which constrained our parties to retreat after Colonel Burghill had received shot through his right arm. His sword was even at the throat of the Lord Carnarvon. The enemy, enraged by the wounds of their choice commanders from so small a party of ours, which charged up to our ground, which ground after a hard dispute was yielded unto them, partly by force, partly voluntarily upon good advice, 
but considering our horse number exceeded theirs as much as their, did, their foot did ours, we might have sufficient room to fight on. Both armies being on the plain, charges grew hot on both sides, as like there was never seen in England. Some old soldiers did say that the furious fights in France bore to play in comparison of this. Not one regiment of ours, but charged their horse and foot four to four or five several times, especially Lord Arthur Halslerig, who charged most bravely and was himself so far engaged that had he not gallantly bestirred himself and killed the man that encountered him, he had been taken prisoner, in which conflict he would receive wound of the thigh and push of pike, but blessed be God no danger in it, being the next day be able to walk around. And the general, Sir William Waller, in his person charged four times upon them. The parliamentarians retreated a few hundred yards to the cover of a wall across the narrowest point of the plateau. As darkness fell, the firefight continued. Neither army would move from the cover they had found and both armies contemplated retreat. <laughs> Word on the street. Before we get to the street name, would you be surprised to know that there is actually a place called Battlefields near Lansdowne Hill? Just in case you needed reminding that there was a battle there. But the road we're visiting this week is Brassknocker Hill, and legend has it that the road was named after the distinctive doorknocker of the Brassknocker Inn, now known as the Crown Inn. On the 4th of July, late at night, under the cover of darkness, it was the parliamentarians who abandoned their position. Though the Royalists were left in control of the field and of Bath, but they had made these gains at a very high cost. Waller, in contrast, had lost very few killed or wounded and was ready to fight another day. The Royalist army consisted of more than 4,000 foot, 2,000 horse and 30 dragoons, and the Parliamentarians' army of around 1,500 foot and 2,500 horse. The battle ended up inconclusive. The Royalists forced Waller and his supporters to retreat from the hilltop, but at the expense of heavy losses and desertions. No one's ever been sure how many casualties there were at Lansdowne in 1643, but one parliamentarian pamphlet in the aftermath maintained 200 Royalists died and 300 were wounded, while the parliamentarians had 19 dead and 56 wounded the true figures are likely to have been much, much higher. Because, like I said, this was a propaganda parliamentarian pamphlet. One of the key players in the Battle of Lansdowne Hill was Sir Bevor Grenville, leading his legendary Cornish pikemen fresh from victories at Braddock Down and Stratton Sir so Breville Granville was a Cornish cavalier. He knew that joining this fight was a suicidal act of bravery. 
during the Battle of Sebevo was literally poleaxed in the head by parliamentary horsemen as he and his Cornishmen bravely stormed up Lansdowne Hill in the face of the enemy. It is said that after Sir Bevel fell from his horse, his pikemen, who were dressed in white, were then led by his 16-year-old son John, who was with him. John mounted his horse and led the force to victory. Sir Bevel didn't die immediately, but succumbed to his head injury later at the nearby rectory in Cold Ashton. At first, Grenville was a supporter of Parliament when he was an MP for Launceston, sitting beside his childhood friend, Sir Elliot, MP for Newport St Germans. But then his friend and fellow patriot perished in the tower and Grenville drifted towards the side of the king. He rallied the Cornish to fight for the kings alongside his friend, Sir Ralph Hopton, to counteract any actions the Parliamentary Committee at the Launceston Summer Assizes of 1642. This resulted in his expulsion from the House of Commons. And this set him on the course of fighting for the Royalists, leading to his death at Lansdowne Hill. And so, at the top of Lansdowne Hill, less than a mile away from Toghill as you travel south down Freezing Hill Lane towards Bath Racecourse, you can't miss Sir Bevel Grenville's monument. Erected by Henry Grenville, Lord Lansdowne, the grandson of Sir Bevel, on the spot where his grandfather died. The monument is 25 feet high and carries an inscription on the south side describing the battle, with two poems on the north side. And on top, there's a griffin bearing the Greville coat of arms. The eulogy on the monument reads... His was not nature's courage, nor that thing. We valour call, which time and reason bring, but a diviner fury, fierce and higher, valour transported into ecstasy. As promised, I said I'd tell you more about the find of the pike head in the field in Lansdowne. Here's an account by J.P.E. Faulkner, a Civil War enthusiast from 1938. A week ago, I heard from Mr. G. Anstey of Hamswell Cottages that a spearhead had been ploughed up in a field at the back of his cottage by Mr. D. Pullen of Toghill Cottages, Wick. So last Sunday afternoon, I walked over to see Mr. Pullen and found him at home. He told me that five years ago he had ploughed up what he described as a spearhead, but did not know what he had done with it, though, he added, he had shown it to one or two people quite recently. However, after an intensive search for it, lasting about 20 minutes, he at last pulled it out of some ivy on his garden wall. It turned out to be not a spearhead of Bronze Age that I had hoped for, but an iron pike head, which, as I have already stated, probably dates back from the Battle of Lansdowne. Interestingly enough, in the Bath Chronicle and Weekly Gazette of Thursday the 31st of March, 1864, 
there was a poem by J.J.D. in Temple Bar. It was called The Battle of Lansdowne near Bath. And here it is. We stood Lansdowne's northern slope at the hour of evening's chime, and we talk of the bloody deeds done there though in dark rebellious time, and traced the battle's line sore with fancy sight, the armed array, the wild affray, the hash, the crash, the flight, and heard in fancy's ear the shouts, the groans, the stifled breath of men in mortal combat met, in agony death, and named Sir Bevel Grenville's name, and proudly spoke of him, who led the van of strife and toil through all that carnage grim, who, following fast, where duty called, reached glory's early goal. And on that hot, insane plain, poured out his noble soul, hard-pressed by treasons dark and foul, King Charles had called for aid, and Cornwall's best and bravest hearts, the sacred call, obeyed. To loss of land, limb of life, rightfully, cheerfully they go. The Bassets of Tehide, the gallant house of Staugodolphin, and Trelawney and Bolas, and all the sons of Cloawans and Trevian of Carhaes, and Arundel and Vivian, and every worthiest name from Morwinstown to Maker, from the Lizard to the Rain. Penrith called up her miners, in loving loyal league, marched forth the lusty husbandmen of Roseland and Meneague, from town and hamlet, hall and hut, from mountain, moor and coast, and all the vales of Foy and Far gathered a noble host, and o'er the Hamas to Caradon and Rothal's craggy hill, and westward to St. Michael's Mount and far St. Mary's Isle, one shout arose, one long, deep note, whose echoed answers ring, through length and depth and breadth and height, up Cornwall for the king. On Braddock's down, on the hill they cowed the rebel crest, and reared royal standard, high triumphant, o'er the west. And Devon roused her sons to arms as their banners eastward went, and our own sunny Somerset her choicest yeomen sent. Forth Taunton yielded, Luttrell's fear gave up Dunster Tower, Camaphron's earl on Mendip height crowd, Popham's serried power, and Waller's stern battalions fell back in sullen dread, still broken the Cornish sword, yet fighting as they fled, till over Lansdowne rallying, they fiercely turn at bay, and dared the cavalier come forth to dire and deadly fray. But the wakeful foe had laboured hard through all the sultry night, and his lines appeared as morning dawned, up thrown alone the height. And the gunner stood by the cauldron, the pikeman with his spear, and the mailed dragoon, and the halbertman and crouching musketeer, and dark Will Waller strode in haste from thickening file to file, his dull eye lowering and his heart oppressed with hidden guile. And he bade his men strike home amain for the solemn league and vow, and the of the traitor legibly was branded on his brow. For at the word his squadrons burst, fierce crowding rank on rank, and down the height in fury it dashed and broke Carnarvon's flank. His column wavered, bent, recoiled, till Slanning rushed to aid, and the foemen on their lines fell back, disordered and dismay again, till the flight they madly rushed all mangled, hacked and riven. Again they fled, men and horses and arms crushed, confusion, driven and the brothers' blood. Brothers shed flowed forth in mingled tide, and brave men fell and clutched the earth, and groaned and gasped and died. But on the left the battle storm thickened in deadlier might yet still, the Grenville's arm prevailed in hard and equal fight. And still the royal banner towered, 
and still the rebel fled, for there the Cornish pikemen fought and Sir Breville led. Dark Waller saw the advancing crest and knew the desperate need, and headlong into the thickest fight plunged in his impetuous steed. For through the host from line to line a rapid signal ran, and horse and foot dense mass down thundered their van. The cannon poured an iron hail, and pike and lance and gun, and sweeping sword and crashing axe, a ghastly harvest won. And Hopton sank, and Arundon toiled in wounds and pain. Arid England's best and noblest blood was shed on earth like rain. Yet still in vain Dark Waller raged, and piled the field with dead. For still the Cornish pikes pressed on, and still Sir Beville led. In hottest fire and sorest need, where danger's loudest call, he stood the stay and bulwark, the soul of strength of all. Mid smoke and dust, mid wounds and death, from post to post he passed, and faint hangs grafts that blade again, and victory followed fast. And faint hearts beats with life, still where he drove his solemn war cry. My king, my country, and my god, tis even tide, the fight o'er. The vanquished foeman flies, but stretched upon that fatal height, Sir Bevel Grenville lies. The rebel's axe had cleft his helm, just as the fight was done, when daring heart and desperate hand, the hard-fought field had won. He fell as falls the lordly oak, loosed at each mighty limb, faint beats that good and gallant heart, that lofty eye dim his breath, comes fast and short and hard. His brow is cold as stone, scarce know that they Grenville lies, save by the low death moan. They laid him neath the sacred shade, and men of God were there to bless his soul, Jesus' grace, and soothe his pangs with prayer. And gentle maidens watched the night, like angels his side, till morning rose and hope was quenched, and the great Grenville died. Round the pale course, in speechless grief, the Cornish warriors stand, and slanning kneels, in his own grasped the Grenville's hand. Trinian weeps as women weep, and sighs convulsive start, and groans of deep-drawn agony from Hopton's bursting heart, and Bassett bounces his throbbing head down like a bulrush low, and o'er his friend and brother mourns with more than brother's woe. Lansdowne stands his monument, Kirkhampton has his dust, his spirit slumbers with the blessed in holy humble trust, and Cornwall has his lofty name to tell with sacred pride how like the hero saint lived, and like a martyr died. true crime but are looking for something different it sounds like a sitcom it does the kind of assholes you should probably leave them alone do you like learning about cases so off the wall they can't possibly be true her wig is enormous but it is lifted off her head by a monkey do you love history but want to hear about what they didn't teach you in school it's just got a almost where you hang your horns sign Do you like laughing awkwardly about cases that are bizarre and a little strange? They'd be able to wield so many knives with all of their little arms. (laughs) 
then we have the podcast for you. Join me, Lindsay. And me, Madison, for Ye Old Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. Listen every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime. In the news today, a man walks into the local bookshop and asks for a book on turtles. The assistant asks, hardback? And he says, yeah, with little heads. Back in the day facts. And so we start off with the 14th of January, 1858, when Napoleon III of France escapes an assassination attempt made by Felice Orsini and his accomplices in Paris. Also on the 14th of January, but in 1984, Madonna first sings Holiday on American Bandstand. On the 15th of January, 1867, 40 people die when ice covering the boating lake at Regent's Park, London, collapses. Also on the 15th of January, but in 1889, the Coca-Cola Company, then known as the Pemberton Medicine Company, is incorporated in Atlanta. On the 16th of January, 1707, the Scottish Parliament ratifies the Act of Union, paving the way for the creation of Great Britain. On the 18th of January 1904, Archibald Leach was born at 15 Huggenden Road, Horfield, Bristol. He would grow up to become one of classic Hollywood's definitive leading men from the 1930s until the mid-1960s, his name being Cary Grant. He appeared on Broadway under the name Archie Leach, but when he signed to Paramount Pictures, he was promptly told to change his name. Mr. Leach suggested Carrie Lockwood, the name of the character he played in the 1931 Broadway production, Nicky. An actor named Harry Lockwood was already under contract to the studio. However, Paramount rejected the name. Archie Leach then chose the surname Grant from a list of suggestions the studio kept for actors' stage names. Archie Leach then forever became Carrie Grant. On the 17th of January 1773, Captain James Cook leads the first expedition to sail south of the Antarctic Circle. And lastly, on the 18th of January 1977, Australia's worst rail disaster occurs at Granville, Sydney, when a crowded commuter train derailed, running into the supports of a road bridge that collapsed onto two of the train's passenger carriages. 83 people died and more than 213 were injured. In 2017, an 84th victim, an unborn child, was added to the fatality list. Well, I'm afraid that's the end of today's show. But don't worry because I'll be here, same time, same place, next week. And I'd like to take a moment to thank Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio, as well as Joe Wilson and Molly Jeffries from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, because they're the ones who really brought this story to life. Thank you, one and all.
This particular subject was suggested by Julian Humphreys, and it also happens to be the 380th anniversary of this significant event. If the outcome had been different, history as we know it would be considerably changed. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.